Hello, everyone, and welcome to Mystifyingly Missing, True Crime, and Thought-Provoking Events. My name is Rhonda Jefferson, and I'll be your host as we explore different topics that will hopefully let us learn more about the world around us. Now, I have been working on a couple of different episodes involving brothers, and I'll probably expand the series to also include siblings, so it's not just brothers. And while I'm still working on a couple of different episodes and have actually come across a really good resource for one of them, I wanted to kind of revisit the very beginning of when I started to podcast. Now, I started probably a little more than a year ago, and I also have another podcast called Danger on Delmarva, which is the region of the United States where I live. And in episode three, I recounted a, a spree shooting that took place in 2005. And I was very close to where it was happening, though still thankfully far enough away where I was not directly impacted. But I remember the events of that day. And that's why I wanted to cover it pretty early on in, you know, in the actual podcast. But as time has gone by, I've, you know, in some ways improved the way I search for things as well as how I present them. And I was able to find out more information about the, the shooter's brother who was also convicted of crimes. And while at the time of the original episode, I didn't have all of that information, you know, like I said, I've kind of improved on some of the ways that I search. So what I'm doing with this initial episode on the series about brothers or siblings, I'm going to, I don't want to say re-upload, but I'm re-recording the episode with additional information that I found out about the shooter in the original episode, as well as testimony summaries that I found about his brother and the case that he went through as well. So I wanted to go ahead and re-record this. And while a lot of the information near the beginning will be very similar, if not verbatim, to the original episode, there will be additional information as well as, you know, the, the testimony summaries about his brother. One of the things that I did find interesting, though, is there really wasn't much mention of the shooter's brother, even though the brother had committed crimes previously and had been convicted. There weren't really that many articles, even at the time of the conviction of the brother, um, Allison Lamont Norman, from the original episode. So I wonder if it was because social media was not quite as prevalent in 2005, though it was getting started, or if possibly in, in the one instance the shooting victim was not exactly the most upstanding member of society as far as you know the activities that he participated in 
So with this being said, I do just want to give my warning about how this episode will discuss violence and even death. And it it can be pretty intense at times. So I just want to let everybody know up front that, you know, we will be discussing violence. All of my sources will be linked in the description of the episode as well as my contact information. And, you know, I will have a couple of summaries or testimony summaries as well as petitions that were linked in there um, after you know, the actual convictions came through. So today, join me as I recall both a very turbulent, intense morning throughout the eastern shore of Delaware and parts of Maryland, as well as reviewing the background of the shooter, Allison Lamont Norman, and his half-brother, Shane DeShields. And while these two both had their own defining crimes, and also were victims of crime in their childhood, they each decided their own fates. The day started off pretty much as any other day. People were getting ready for work, children were waiting outside at a bus stop, and there was just a little bit of a cool nip in the air, a little breeze that had started throughout the day. And it was still early spring, so this would be expected on a lot of mornings. Parents and caregivers were thinking about whether or not they should send their child to school with a coat or should they put them in a sweatshirt. And looking back, I wonder if Jamel Weston was thinking about this as he dropped his nephew off at the bus stop at the apartment complex. And eventually will come to know that he probably was. And as with most other people, my day was starting off pretty normally as well. And sometime though, between 8 and 8.30, my cell phone rang. I was sitting in a turn lane at an intersection from Route 113 towards a back road that I took to connect to the main thoroughfare that I would take for work. Now, remember, too, this was 2005. Cell phones are not as, or were not as technologically advanced as they are now. And my phone was quite clunky, for any lack of a better term. And we also did not have Bluetooth in the car like we do now, but I had a way to plug it into a headset, and that's how I answered the call. It was from a coworker. And while I was kind of relatively new at that particular department at my, um, at my employer and really didn't know a lot of people that well, you know, I think we still had a pretty fair relationship at that point of time. But I didn't really expect a call from her that early in the morning. And so as soon as I answered it, she asked where I was which was a surprise because I wasn't running late or anything like that. And so I described where I was, where the turn lane was on Route 13, and she told me to be careful. She said that she had heard someone was, quote, shooting up Route 13, end quote, 
and he was going throughout the main thoroughfare of Delaware, and that's in the southern part of Delaware, that would be Route 13. She didn't know if the shooter was going north or south, just that shots were being fired. And she told me the location where he was the last time that she heard. And it, that was about four minutes from my house. The turn lane that I was in was only about a minute from my house. So basically, as soon as I turned out or turned on to Route 13, I got into a turn lane you know, pretty quickly after I made that turn. So really, at that point in time, I was about three minutes from where the shooting was occurring, or at least the last time that she knew. So, of course, I wanted to get across Route 13 as quickly as possible, but it seemed like cars were just moving at the speed of snails, and I couldn't get across. And as soon as I saw any break in traffic, I went across with some relief, or a lot of relief, at that point in time. Not too much earlier, just outside of Carble Gardens Apartments, Jamel Weston had taken his nephew to wait for the bus. Now, I recall at the time that he had gone back to get his nephew a jacket or something warmer to wear, though I haven't really seen that mentioned in a lot of sources. So it may have been just something that I heard on the radio, on the news, on TV, or something that was being said. But that is what I'd heard at the time. Mr. Weston and his cousin, Marcus Cannon, were both at the apartment complex. And as I'm sure, with most relatives, if you run into one another, you're going to stop and say something to each other. Allison Lamont Norman, who going forward, I will just use his last name, Norman, as there will be a lot of names in this episode, had dropped off his daughter at the school bus stop. He motioned for Weston and Cannon, and they started over. Norman shot Weston directly in his face, and that would ultimately be fatal. Cannon was shot in the arm and was able to run. Norman's daughter ran back in to tell her mother about what just had happened. Her mother, Keisha DeShields, misunderstood what had actually occurred and thought that Norman had just fired the gun into the air. So as he came back into the apartment, she told him to leave as she figured the police would be called pretty quickly and would be arriving at the complex. And all around this time, people were driving to work, passing them by on the street, and waiting with their own children or loved ones at various bus stops. So again, a lot has changed since 2005, and cell phone technology would be comparatively archaic. So I couldn't really sit there and you know, check the internet on my phone like I would today, but there I was now at work at a bank with a man with a gun driving through my state, and I didn't know where he was going. Not far from Carvel Gardens, for lack of a better term, there was a very small strip mall. 
truly, I've only ever seen a furniture store there, at least for a continuous basis. You know, I can't even tell you what other stores are there. But a newspaper article described it as a shopping center. But to me, either description may be a little generous. This was located on a side road, which connected an alternate Route 13 to the main Route 13. Carville Gardens was located at one end or near one end of that little side road closer to alternate 13. Norman carjacked or stole a car. I guess stole would be more appropriately used and drove towards 13. So again, to kind of set the, the description, he stole a car. He went from apartment complex that was closer to a parallel route to 13, so alternate 13, and drove towards the main thoroughfare, Route 13. And he saw this man walking. His name was Anthony White, and he was 45 years old. There really isn't much said about his background in the articles, but frankly, that's irrelevant because he was a man just walking that morning and would have never anticipated what was about to happen. As he approached Norman, who had stopped, and it looked like, at least to Mr. White, that he may have been shopping, I'm sorry, stopping to maybe give him a ride as he was looking for one, Norman shot Anthony White in the stomach and leg. Now, as some information is a little harder to find on this, I am going by some memory. From what was stated at the time, he had to crawl to get help. He thankfully was able to get to people who were arriving at the little shopping center, and by the end of the day, he was listed in stable condition. And just through the time period of the morning while all of this was going on, I felt nervous. And I'm sure many, many people across Delaware and Maryland were feeling the exact same way. But Norman continued to move south, which was the opposite of the direction that I was in. But still, I couldn't help but imagine what the victims and the families were going through at that time. Now, unfortunately, a few years later, I would know what it was like to lose a family member to gun violence. But at this time, I didn't know that was in the future for me. And I just couldn't imagine Jamel Weston's family thinking it was just any normal morning as it should have been. And Mr. Weston, being a good uncle, wanted to take care of his nephew and then tragedy and violence struck. Now, also at this time, I had two family members in law enforcement. So again, not knowing which direction he was heading, I was worried about them and still worrying about all of the people in the path of wherever he was going. Going south, he got to a little town called Delmar. Delmar is, is a town that straddles the Delaware and Maryland line. So just like 
the region of the area I live in is called Delmarva for Delaware, Maryland, and Virginia. Delmar is Delaware and Maryland. And normally you wouldn't expect a lot of violence in this relatively small town, but again, this was not a normal morning as Norman fired his gun in some ways indiscriminately with bullets flying as he drove. He shot at a garbage truck, but thankfully none of the workers within or outside of the truck were injured. Continuing to drive, he continued to shoot. At times he didn't hit anyone, but he came close with a bullet barely missing a sleeping child in a house. And I'm a mother now, though I wasn't at the time, but I think I would be in shock if I came across that, going to pick up my child and seeing a bullet hole or a bullet so close to them. And I wonder if other people were attached to their radios or TVs and even just refreshing the news online if they could. The next person shot was a woman named Marsha Hankerson. But now Norman was entering a much more densely populated area and the area was populated by both businesses and residents. This was in Salisbury, Maryland. And even if you didn't live in Salisbury, there was a higher percentage of traffic during the day than through the evening because people were traveling on their way to work or were actually stopped at work and going in at that time of morning. And still he continued to shoot, not caring what was in his way. He made it to a friend's house and in the process stole one of his friend's dogs but shot two others. So yes, he shot two dogs who in no way could identify him, which in many cases could be a reason for shooting someone or something, but no, the dogs couldn't identify him, but he still shot two. He must have realized too that people might be looking for his car, so he decided it was time to get another one. He came across a man named Gavindale Peters, also known as Pete. He was driving a van and was actually very close to two elementary schools. From what it appeared, Gavindale Peters would have been willing to give him a ride, but it didn't get to that point, at least not where Mr. Peters would drive to Norman's liking. Witnesses said that it looked like Norman and the driver had argued before Norman shot him. At 28 years old, Davindale Peters' life was taken. Now, you know, in just at that point, the few episodes of the podcast that I'd done, I'd found that it was sometimes hard to find the names of victims. I had done an episode about an explosion that took place at an Amico plant at the time, but it actually happened the same night that the Philadelphia Phillies won their first World Series championship. Philadelphia was very, very close 
to the point of that explosion. And Philadelphia Fire Department actually came to assist in fighting the blaze. So there was a lot of fanfare and excitement going on about that night. And a lot of people didn't even know about the explosion, even though it rattled windows far away. Now, before I really delve into that topic as well, I just wanted to emphasize how sometimes the victims don't get recognized in everything that they'd gone through. And it took a while for me to find the names of other victims that, you know, that Norman assaulted. After the incident with Davendale Peters, he came across another driver. There was a woman who was driving her van with her daughter in the back seat. Her name was Ms. Green. And as not every article you know, mentioned her name, I am going to at least keep it a little more private and just use the last name. But of course, worrying about her daughter, as soon as she saw him, she you know, hit the gas pedal and drove away, but he did shoot at her. And this actually resulted in her being paralyzed. He also broke into the home of an elderly couple, but by some grace, he left the home without hurting them. Now, shortly after this, a citizen called the police to say that they had spotted him. You know, while I can't say for sure whether or not things may have been embellished in the heat of the moment, but rumor around Delmarva was that the caller was ducked down between cars um, as he or she was calling the police. Now, that, again, was things I was hearing throughout Delmarva. In this update, I did find more of a description about what occurred, as I will go over that a little bit later. Um, the gunman, Mr. Norman, was arrested after a foot chase, and, you know, he actually was dressed in a bulletproof vest. So I do wonder if that slowed him down a little bit. But once he was arrested, he really didn't resist, though a lot of people or witnesses in the area said he was crying. So how did this happen on sleepy little Delmarva, where a gunman who, by the way, had missed a court date on the previous day, sought to wreak terror across two states. So let's go back to the day before. He was due in court due to gun violence outside of a convenience store in Delaware. He had four weapons violations for that, and at the time of his arrest, after this incident, he would have at least three felonies and 15 misdemeanors. And let's be clear, his felonies were not those that were just on one side of being a felony. These were way over the limit. And he was, at that point, a violent criminal. Prior to the October arrest, Norman was on probation related to a series of arrests dating back to New Year's Eve of 1999, when he was charged with trafficking cocaine, as well as other charges. He was sentenced to six months in a prison boot camp and two and a half years probation. 
Four months after leaving prison there, he was arrested for possessing drugs outside of a school. He was sentenced to eight years in prison, but served three before being released in March of 2004. So some may say drugs are victimless crime, but he was outside of school with these drugs. And bystanders can become victims of drug violence as well. So I do believe addiction should be treated as a medical condition, but... You know, as we go forward as well um, with his brother's case, violence is not the answer, but he seemed to have had a life at this point that was punctuated by both drugs and violence. And, you know, given his escalating manner and types of crimes, we have to wonder what accountability was being given at that time. So what did the gunman have to say about his rampage? It's kind of hard to tell because of what he was saying. He said he was protecting his daughter from aliens. Now, if he truly did think this, then he does need help. And it would be up to doctors to determine what kind of help but it does not negate the fact that dozens of lives were turned upside down. Lives were ended. There were children who would miss out on memories and the wisdom that their father could have shared with them. Nothing can take the place of that. Nothing can take the place of Jamel Weston walking his nephew out to school every morning and spending time with his family. Nothing will give Miss Green back the use of her legs and things she could have done with her daughter if not for that fact of being shot, as well as all of the children who witnessed these traumatic events and the family members of those impacted. So this is where I do or did find more information about what occurred. This was in a, basically an appeal that took place And I, you know, again, I'm getting a little better at searching for things and was able to um, find that particular appeal. The defense made arguments that Norman was acting in, quote, the throes of a psychotic episode driven by bizarre delusions that were the culmination of a lifetime of exposure to abuse, violence, and criminal conduct, end quote. There was testimony given by a psychiatrist that there were a number of different factors that led to this. The psychiatrist indicated that some of these factors were regarding his older brother's arrest and conviction for murder. And that, you know, in just this moment, to better understand Norman, we'll take a look at that brother. And... Apparently, according to the psychiatrist, what Norman saw during the testimony given against his brother and the court um, and conviction, it left a scar on him. And that was an emotional scar, but they did also have physical scars. So I will get into, 
you know, his brother, um, Shane DeShields, in a few moments to better understand what he was going through. But these are some of the other factors that the psychiatrist thought Norman was dealing with leading up to the shooting. We mentioned that he had missed a court date for the previous day that had taken place in October of 2004, where Norman himself was also shot and required surgery to his digestive tract, um, his colon specifically, and was hospitalized for quite a while. Now, his potential for serving time for this particular incident was up to 10 years. And I don't know how much they would have given his history, um, you know, weight to this determination as to how long he would serve, but that was what he was facing. After being in the hospital for a while in the state of Maryland, he moved in with his mother in Seaford, Delaware. Instead of taking prescribed medication, he did stop that. Um, and instead of using prescribed pain medication, which I know can also become addictive, he used ecstasy and marijuana instead. So this definitely did not help any thoughts that he may have been having at the time. But still, even in this state, we can understand that he was in fear for his life. He had been shot and he didn't know who it actually was, but theorized that one of the people that shot him could have been one of his own friends. So from Seaford, Delaware in January of 2005, he moved in with one of his girlfriends at Carvel Gardens. And we've already mentioned that girlfriend. Her name is Keisha DeShields. Now, you may have recalled I mentioned his brother Shane DeShields. Keisha and Shane are distance, distant cousins. But DeShields also is a pretty common name in the area. So, you know, I will just call her Keisha that way. There's not as much um, confusion, possibly. Now, Keisha did have five children, and one of them was Norman's daughter. He also did have another girlfriend at the time, and in January of 2005, that girlfriend reportedly did have his son, though he is not on the birth certificate. He didn't sign it, but he was there to actually see his son, and he did take his daughter with Keisha to meet her little brother. Now, like I mentioned the previous day, he did not go to court as ordered, and as we would expect, a warrant was issued for his arrest. But instead of trying to work on his legal troubles, he spent some time with a friend and again smoked some marijuana, took some ecstasy with his friend, and even discussed his mother and possibly killing her going so far as to mention to this friend about a place that he could bury her in the woods. But then some paranoia started to creep in, and he eventually came to think that this particular friend that he was with might also want to kill him. Signs of a mental health issue began to emerge in an even greater manner that night. Now, I am reading from a petition or it's a, an appeal, but Norman is listed as the petitioner in the appeal. 
And, you know, after the conviction, these things were pointed out. He thought that he had superpowers. And his superpowers were the ability to see things in the dark. During that night prior to the shooting spree, he felt that Keisha was ignoring him. And he actually pointed a gun at her, claiming that she was disrespecting him. And he also began a verbal tirade, waving the gun around the apartment and saying he was the Messiah. But eventually he did calm down. But of all the TV shows to turn on at that time, he turned on The X-Files. So this might be why he thought he was protecting his daughter from aliens. He thought that the aliens and also demons were trying to get to the children in the apartment, especially the girls, and thinking, too, that he now had this superior vision, he could see in the dark, and he went outside to start to chase them. He saw this as a test to see if he could, quote, protect his family, end quote. The petitioner, in this case Norman, thought he was guarding the children and he would actually pinch and pull the little girl's hair thinking that when they screamed or made noises that would cause the aliens or demons to leave. So instead of calling for help at this point thinking of the girlfriend as well as another adult in the apartment instead of calling anybody for help, even, you know, if you didn't want to get him in more trouble with, you know, the law or courts, even just someone that you think might be able to talk him down, anybody, you know, while he's pulling little girl's hairs, the other adults did nothing. By the next morning, you know, his girlfriend, Keisha, everything was looking somewhat normal. But as the morning moves on, he starts to see demons pretty much at anybody or anything that he looks at, which explains why he thought the dogs were demons. So he is deteriorating in his mental health. He did put on body armor. As I stated earlier, he had a bulletproof vest and this is where we kind of pick up from the beginning where he shot Jamel Weston and Marcus Shannon, or I'm sorry, Marcus Cannon. Now, some of my information will seem repetitive, but now going into more detail with the exact chain of events will give us a better understanding. Now that we know about what his mindset was, we find out why he thought the two dogs needed to be shot in that they were demons. When he did actually get into the vehicle with Dabindale Peters, he thought Peters was driving too slow and that Peters might be working with the demons. And so that's when he got out of the vehicle, ran to the driver's side and shot an innocent man, just as he had been shooting innocent people all morning. This is then where he tried to carjack the young mother with her daughter, ultimately paralyzing her. 
He chased another woman who was a witness, but thankfully ran out of ammunition. He started to go from house to house, banging on doors. People who were outside were running in fear to get into their homes. Now, the fact that he ran out of ammunition may explain why he didn't really hurt the elderly couple, at least in an efficient manner. Um, I say that because I don't know if he possibly tried to get to a knife or something else where he may have had to have more up close and personal contact with the elderly couple. But thankfully, the gentleman took a good swing at him with a broom and he did not hurt them. Now, this is about the point where officers did arrive at the scene and Norman had left the elderly couple's homes and he did start behind or to hide behind cars. Now, one of the previous women who ran into her mother's house to get away from him pointed him out to the police as she saw them. So this kind of goes against some of the rumors that were going on at the time about, you know, a bystander kind of standing outside pointing him out, at least as per the court document. In terms of the immediate aftermath, including the punishment phase, when Norman appeared before the judge, he was belligerent. And while many defendants leave the talking to their attorney, Norman cursed throughout the process. And while he had asked for an attorney the previous day, he did not want to hear anything from his attorney on the day of the hearing. The judge actually went on to say he was the most belligerent defendant he'd seen in 16 years as a judge. Now, as the case moved forward, it was decided to first file the charges and face them in Delaware. Though the exact specifics were not provided as to why this was done, it may have been because of how the Delaware justice system works. Information was vague about this, but even though he was captured in Maryland, he was moved to Delaware. Someone from a Maryland prosecutor's office did mention that there were differences in the way that the two states handled insanity pleas. Now, these episodes are not meant to be political. They're, you know, supposed to be discussions about society, how we handle situations and what we can learn about them. But sometimes in doing so, we do skirt some political issues. And those issues in this case may look at how we treat mental health, how we rehabilitate prisoners, and things such as that. And, you know, I, I think there may be some overlap in cases like this. Now, to understand a little bit more about Norman, we are now going to discuss his half-brother, Shane DeShields. Now... The testimony first delivered in DeShield's trial for murder revealed that both he and Norman had been abused by a man that his mother left them to babysit or him to babysit um, for the children quite often. And Shane DeShields is serving a life sentence for the murder of a teenager in April of 2003. So this was about two years prior to Norman's shooting spree. So, Norman did have a very difficult childhood, as, as did his brother Shane DeShields. 
Now, as far as actual individual articles, I really couldn't find much about that, except in the Baltimore Sun, it mentioned how Norman's brother was, you know, in jail for murder or in prison for murder. And that's how I even knew about it because there weren't really a, you know, a lot of articles about anything related to his brother. So as I mentioned before, too, names may get a little confusing. So I am referring to Norman's girlfriend as Keisha and his brother as either Shane or Shane DeShields. And also, there will be um, another situation in Shane's case where he is working with someone who is not related to him, but they do share a relative. So, let's get into this information. Shane DeShields apparently woke up on April 17th, 2003. So, actually, pretty close to two years to the day from his brother, prior to his brother's shooting spree. And DeShields decided he needed to rob somebody. He called somebody that he knew, a Michael Smith, though he was no blood relation to DeShields, they did share a half-sister. So, you know, it, it may have been easier if we had actual information, such as if this was a maternal or paternal half-sibling. Um, you know, if it was paternal, then that would mean this... Um, this half-sister was not related to Norman, or if it was maternal, then she would have been related to Norman. So there's not any really clear delineation of the relationship um, between the half-sister and Smith and DeShields. So again, kind of a layer there where it may get a little bit confusing. And to add an even further layer, um, DeShields said that he, they, he thought he could rob someone named George Coverdale, who, according to a testimony and a summary provided about that testimony, was also DeShields' cousin. So they made plans to meet up, um, mentioning to Smith that he didn't have any guns so that Michael Smith could provide the guns. Later that day, DeShields and Smith met at DeShields' aunt's house with Smith bringing guns. DeShields decided to use a 357 Magnum, but that had actually been loaded with 38 caliber bullets, and Smith took a 32 automatic. They then went to a package store or liquor store that was named the Cock and Bull. It also was a bar. Um, but yes, we can picture on the front of the liquor store, which is now closed. It showed a, if I remember correctly, a bull and a rooster playing poker, I believe. At least they were on the front of the building. That's what I remember. It's since been um, torn down for quite a few years. And now a local convenience store sits there named Royal Farms. From the Cock and Bull, they went over to a convenience store named the Deluxe Dairy Market to use the payphone. That is now a liquor store. So, yes, the 
the former liquor store became a convenience store and the convenience store became a liquor store. So, okay. Um, but anyway, they used a payphone there, um, 2003, so there's a chance not everyone had cell phones. So DeShields made contact with Coverdale, and later the two men, Smith and DeShields, went to DeShields' grandmother's house, and they once again called George Coverdale to come over. This was at least presumably to buy drugs, and that was at least what they had used to bring Coverdale over to the grandmother's house. And as part of the formulation of the plan, DeShield's testimony indicated that it was discussed that guns would be used. Now, whether or not they intended to use them, the fact is they did bring guns. Now, the two men waited outside of the grandmother's house for a little bit, and then Coverdale arrived with another man named Deshaun Blackwell sitting in the passenger seat. Smith and DeShields entered the van, and they sat directly behind the two men. Now, going back a few days earlier than that, DeShields and Deshaun Blackwell had been in some type of chase with the police, DeShields thought that Blackwell had ratted him out to the police by letting him know that it was, in fact, DeShields that had been driving. Now, according to DeShields' testimony, which is what I'm going through right now, um, his grandmother started to walk out of the house, and so Coverdale started to back out and leave. And apparently this did not sit well with DeShields and Smith. Um... Even though Smith and DeShields did get the drugs, they didn't pay for them. And it's important to note that during the argument with Blackwell, DeShields made sure that everyone could see the gun. He took the gun out and put it on his lap. And you know this means that Blackwell and Coverdale knew that DeShields was armed. Coverdale must have felt threatened because he took his own gun and exited the vehicle. It was the co-defendant, Michael Smith, who admitting, admitted to firing the first shot, but he actually only hit the driver's door. Coverdale did fire back, and DeShields returned fire, hitting him in the chest. A stipulation was made by the parties involved that, yes, it was DeShields who actually fired the bullet that killed Coverdale. So three shots have been fired. Smith at Coverdale... Coverdale firing back, and then DeShields at Coverdale. Chaos must have ensued because it was stated that everybody exited the van and somehow Coverdale was actually able to make it to almost the back of the grandmother's house. DeShields tried to take control of the situation and commanded that Blackwell get back into the van that Coverdale had been driving and at this point, DeShields drove to another part of his grandmother's property where there was a small abandoned building, like a shed or a small house. And then he got out of the van to go over to Coverdale, and he stated he found Smith beating Coverdale with a gun. DeShields stated that he pulled Smith off of Coverdale. I don't know why this was, whether it was possibly to keep Coverdale alive and not face a murder charge. 
or if he knew Coverdale was most likely going to die, maybe he pulled Smith off to give them time to get away. But of course, this means at the time, Deshaun Blackwell was still in the car with once DeShield getting back to the van, I should say, not car. Um, he found that Blackwell was gone. I mean, seriously, though, I mean, I would be gone, too. Um, so according to DeShield's testimony, he said he did not know if Smith had actually robbed George Coverdale of any money or jewelry. But around this time, DeShield's grandmother came out and said she had called the police. So this is when Smith and DeShield drove away. We now go to Blackwell's testimony. And frankly, this is just an inter interjection I'm going to put in here. I have to wonder why, if Blackwell knew they were going to meet with DeShields, that if he had legitimately ratted him out, why he would have gone with Coverdale, why he would have, you know, just said, okay, yeah, I'm going to go meet up with this guy who I, you know, made a statement to the police about. So I'm actually kind of feeling that, you know, Blackwell maybe did not rat him out to police, um, to use the terms that I saw used. Maybe, you know, he, it's just DeShields thought he did, but if not, it would take a lot of nerve for Blackwell to, I think, go meet with DeShields. Now, even though going into Blackwell's testimony that, you know, both men were, DeShields and Blackwell were on different sides of the issue, in terms of the actual, you know, shooting scenario, it was pretty close, you know, especially in terms of who shot who when. But there were some differences. Um, after the discussion about the phone calls, which pretty much fell in line, you know, with Blackwell verifying that he, they received two different phone calls that day, um, Blackwell's testimony seems to show things at a little bit of a faster pace, even though it was pretty fast to begin with. But he states that almost as soon as DeShields got into the vehicle, DeShields pulled the gun out and pointed it at Blackwell's head um, instead of sitting it on the lap like DeShields had testified. Now, um, when DeShields was talking about Blackwell being a, quote, snitch, um, he said that he should kill Blackwell. So... This does set the scene that there was a threat of intimidation or violence. So, you know, of course, this would get Coverdale and Blackwell's defenses up. And this will play into why possibly Coverdale grabbed his gun. I mean, if you have someone saying that he's going to kill somebody in your vehicle and he clearly has a gun, you may want to make sure that you can defend yourself. And so um, from this point on, there are some other discrepancies, um, one of them being that the reason they started to drive was not because the grandmother had exited the home, but rather that DeShields had told them to drive. Um, but in that time, Coverdale grabbed a paper bag, which held the gun and exited the vehicle with Smith firing at him. 
which does match with both pieces of testimony. And then Coverdale shot back, and DeShields fired back at him. Blackwell did try to hide, according to his testimony, by lying down next to the van, um, but he could, however, see Coverdale and that he had been shot and saw that Michael Smith was kicking him. Blackwell also stated that he saw Smith taking jewelry off Coverdale as well as emptying Coverdale's pockets. So in this version of events, Blackwell does say that DeShields, before leaving Blackwell in the van, said that DeShields had robbed him. Then DeShields actually told Blackwell to sit right there and pretty much hold on so he could see what Smith was doing, you know. But again, if you're Blackwell, you're going to run. So this is when he made his escape. Um, he said he ran past some houses and saw a man driving that he knew, waved him down, and Blackwell said he dove through the back window or through a window. So I don't really have a picture of him, so I don't know how big or small he might have been, but according to his testimony, he, like, dove into a window. But I'm guessing if, you know, you've just seen somebody shot and one of the people shooting is very mad at you, you're going to do whatever it takes. Now, the prosecution did present other evidence, um, as this is really the end of Blackwell's testimony. Now, I have to question some of the testimony being given after Blackwell and um, Shields. George Coverdale's girlfriend was one of the people who gave testimony but she was going just by what Blackwell had told her had happened. So, you know, it's kind of a secondhand testimony. So even though I'm not doubting that she told the truth, she's just telling what Blackwell told her. So whether or not it was the exact factual retelling, we can't really say. Um... Then also the man who picked up Blackwell that day, a Mr. Hughes, also testified but really had limited knowledge about what was occurring. You know, pretty much he just saw someone he knew running down the road with Blackwell waving him down to stop. And the only thing he could really testify to as a firsthand piece of knowledge was that Deshaun Blackwell got in his car and said that people were trying to kill him. The detective on the case was um, with the Delaware State Police, uh, Keith Marvel. Now, again, kind of um, going back to something I've mentioned before, that um, on an episode of Oxygen's Buried in the Backyard, um, it featured a case from Delaware. I actually appeared in that episode, and the detective who appeared was Keith Marvel. So Marvel, we see his name in a lot of cases. Um, I did try to find out if, you know, the individual towns or cities have a dedicated homicide unit. I would doubt it because there's not a lot of homicides that happen. So normally they would have to reach out to the Delaware State Police to really have assistance with murder investigations. 
Um, I also can't really tell with the description whether it was within town limits. So if it did not occur within town limits, then it would have been the state police as well. Now, Detective Marvel's testimony verified that they did find three bullets. Um, that testimony corresponded with both Smith and, um, I'm sorry, that corresponded with Smith, then Coverdale, then DeShields shooting. Um, they did find a gun near Coverdale, and evidence was sent for further testing. The ballistics testimony um, indicated that the bullet that killed Coverdale came from the 357, meaning that DeShields did admit to killing Blackwell. It was stipulated earlier, and this just corroborated it. Smith did give testimony, and his testimony, at least in my opinion, seems to feel like he's trying to minimize his activity in this event, almost like he was just a bystander looking to, yes, get some drugs, but not you know, really meaning for anything else to happen. What he did testify to at trial, um, you know, and the ballistics evidence is why I formed this opinion. Again, the beginning calls or beginning facts about the phone calls between everybody is pretty standard. That all matches. Um, Smith described um, the case as he was just sitting in the back seat of the van, you know, once they pulled up and they, they got into the vehicle. He was just sitting there attempting to buy some marijuana from Coverdale. And that's when the fight broke out between DeShields and Blackwell about the previous police altercation. Um, he said then Coverdale reached for something and Smith took it to be a gun. Smith said he raised his arms to defend himself and to knock the bag out of Coverdale's hands. But when he did so, the bag dropped and the gun discharged. This doesn't really match with the ballistic evidence, by the way. Um, also, it doesn't match with Blackwell's and DeShield's testimony. Now, Smith indicated that he only participated up to this point, um, even though he really wouldn't call it participating. He would say he was just defending himself, and it was DeShields who ultimately followed Coverdale and shot, beat him, and robbed him. Again, though, this does not match up to Blackwell's testimony, and even if you want to give DeShield's testimony lesser weight as he was a defendant in an upcoming case as well, Blackwell really didn't have a reason to lie. So the fact that Smith's testimony really diverges from both DeShield's and Blackwell's, you know, it, it doesn't sound like it can actually be cooperated in this sense. Now, um... A witness for Smith's defense, um, a man that was reportedly in jail with DeShields, said that DeShields had said that he was, quote, going to bring Smith down with him and say that Smith had something to do with it, end quote. So in other words, this man who testified for Smith said that he heard DeShields pretty much just saying he was going to you know, make Smith go to jail. Looking at this testimony, though, 
even if he said that he was going to bring Smith down and say that Smith had something to do with it, this does not necessarily mean it's false. It is, you know, quite possibly true in this sense that DeShields wanted to, you know, make sure that everybody involved in the shooting was, you know, punished. If he was going to be punished, he wanted the other person punished. Um, now, there was another man who testified who said that he saw himself ha as an uncle to DeShields, even though he wasn't really an uncle. Um, he said that he heard both DeShields and Blackwell say that they were planning on robbing someone and also heard that later Blackwell said he was trying to sell a gun, quote, with a body on it. So, you know, the, the testimony from Smith's defense doesn't necessarily correspond with the ballistics evidence. It doesn't correspond with two separate testimonies from two men on different sides of the issue. And even if you know, some of the things that were testified to on the defense's side um, were true, it did not necessarily detract from the fact that you know, both Smith and DeShields participated in this crime. So now I've finished the stories of the actual crimes themselves and the lead-up to the crimes. So these are two brothers who went through abuse as young children, and it doesn't really say anywhere whether that abuse was ever addressed with the young children, at least not in a proper sense. They never really felt safe in their environment that they were living in. Um, you know, during the testimony from DeShields' trial, you know, during the sentencing, it was revealed that DeShields was, I'll just use the term, assaulted by a man that was babysitting him. Norman also was abused. So they experienced trauma and their mother still did continue to let this man babysit them. So I have to, of course, question that. And I also have to ask, what was their support system outside of the home? Um, did anybody at school see that they were acting out or did they even act out? Were there counselors provided to help support these children with the issues because the man who babysat them did go to jail. But once he got out, which was a very short time, I must say, they were still exposed to the same man. Now, I do want to make it clear that no matter a person's history of abuse or other mitigating factors, it does not give them the right to injure or kill someone. There's no excuse for the actions of either brother. But if we're trying to understand why decisions are made, whether at the time of a specific crime or even earlier where it led to the commission of a crime, we need to take a look at their history. We won't learn how to address certain situations if we don't. 
Also, if we were to just excuse their actions outright based on their childhood, then we would have to do that with each and every child that experienced any type of trauma. And looking at just these cases, with each and every child that was impacted the day of Norman's shooting spree, that is dozens and dozens of children, whether directly or indirectly. Those that lost a parent, those who were at the bus stop and witnessed this, you know, you can't just say that a traumatic childhood excuses any potential or future violence. So I'm not saying that they should not have been punished, but there's no doubt that their childhood trauma left both brothers scarred and someone somewhere failed them or multiple people failed them. Without being able to go back in time and see everything as it happened, we can just try to figure out what their thought process was and why they may have done the stem, some of the things they did looking in retrospect. Now, at the time of the initial abuse, the mother may not have known, but it was later brought to her attention. And the predator, because that's what I'm going to call him, not the babysitter, not a caregiver, he was a predator. You know, maybe he used threats of shame or even more abuse to convince the children not to say anything initially. But again, it was eventually reported and they weren't really protected from it going forward. Now, there is an old adage that an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure, and it really comes to mind here. Until recently, I didn't really even understand what it meant, and it was my initial covering of this event that really made me think about it more in depth. Um, so, set. You know, I want to set the stage for both this episodes as well as future ones to show a cause and effect. Let's look at something that we deal with, you know, or see about on the news. And I promise this will make sense into why I'm bringing up something that seems completely off topic. And I'll bring it kind of around so that it makes sense. When there's some type of major accident, whether it's by train or plane or boat, um, you know, even if no one's killed, but it's, you know, of a large vehicle, um, usually a passenger vehicle, the reasons behind the accident are explored in depth. Even if a mechanical fa failure is found, investigators look beyond that to try to figure out why the mechanical failure happened and of those who were in charge of, I'll just say piloting, no matter which vehicle, um, if those piloting the vehicle could have done anything that might have mitigated the injuries or deaths that occurred after a mechanical failure. They look at factors in the pilot's life. They look at training. They even look at sleep patterns to determine if fatigue can be a factor. I've heard cases where they looked at if there was marital problems or relationship problems to see if that might have been a distraction. Um, 
you know, if a mistake is made by a pilot, they look at these factors as well to see if they could have in any way impacted or distracted them from properly handling the plane or train or boat. So when there is this large scale accident and multiple people are affected, the reasons behind it are intricately examined. But every day across the nation, there are people who experience tragedies and trauma that aren't studied as much. They aren't looked at, looked at with the same level of detail. Now, this could partially be because it's on an individual basis, or in the brother's case, it was one family that was being affected. So I have to ask myself, even though this was not a nationwide covered issue, why aren't the reasons behind an act explored when it's on a smaller scale? Looking at individual instances on that smaller scale can help bring understanding. And if those, you know, facts or figures or whatever, you know, those investigating come up with, if that's shared with other agencies, we can get a better idea of how and why people do the things that they do. And so looking at these, this case, you know, this was a spree shooter. Nowadays, it would have been all over social media. There would have been discussion about gun control. There would have been so many different things that were discussed. Um, and I'm not in any way trying to minimize any degree of the pain that, you know, the number of people impacted felt. What I'm saying is they should have been given more coverage. They should have been honored. Their lives should have been honored by trying to figure out why their lives were taken. So looking, going back to when an accident occurs on a larger scale, why is it that the hundreds of cases that happen every week across the nation aren't being studied in that same level. At the end of the day, there's more people who are impacted by the individual instances of crime and abuse than there will be from an individual accident, even if it is of a large passenger vehicle. And I'm not trying, again, to minimize either instance they both deserve to be investigated to the fullest extent to get a better understanding. What I'm just questioning is why all of these individual events, such as what happened with Norman and DeShields as children, why they aren't examined as much. And I think, and I hope that I explain this properly, is... I think we should start earlier and look at cases, um, you know, right from the beginning, especially when they involve children, so that we can take an early intervention and help support them. So while we can't go back in time and change what happened 
to Mr. Peters or Mr. Weston or Ms. Green, you know, there will be more cases like this. There have been cases like this since, you know, it first occurred. So we should look at trying to change what can happen. I also have to ask in DeShield's case if he was not or if he did not shoot someone who was dealing drugs, if that would have been given more attention as well. Every life is important. So even if you know a person was dealing drugs or had a criminal background, that doesn't mean their life should be taken earlier. So why wasn't that case looked at more closely as well? Maybe getting into DeShield's story as a child and trying to examine that to learn from what happened. Many, many years ago when I was in college, I wrote um, a few pieces for a local newspaper in the summer. And you know, during one of those summers, I interviewed a man whose son had been killed in violence. And he was trying to make positive strides in the community by opening a type of community center for those who didn't have a safe place to go after school and in the summers to find safe activities. And I think that's something that gets lost in a lot of smaller communities. And even in larger communities, it may be a matter of having all of the resources needed to help everyone who needs a safe place to go. And I think supporting and giving people encouragement from a younger age is something that we need to look at more frequently. So going back to that ounce of prevention worth a pound of cure, it's easier for doctors, for anyone to treat something before it gets too out of hand or even to prevent something like a disease from happening rather than to have to go through the treatment process. So as things relate to this episode, the fact that both brothers committed murders should attest to the fact that their background needs to be addressed. I think that with most things, prevention of anything bad is a number one goal. Were there any preventative measures that could have been given to them? Were there things that were missed by the brother's caregivers and should have clued them in that they were being abused? If so, what steps were taken earlier on? Did they act up in school or show any red flags that they were being abused? If so, what steps were taken? Or did they not present any red flags in school? Maybe they were told that they shouldn't talk about it as so many predators tell children. Did anyone ever tell them that abuse in any form is not okay and if they do experience to talk to a respected adult? So these again are ways to try to prevent abuse or prevent it from happening again. If or when it's known that, you know, these children were being abused, were they ever made to feel safe from this predator? And we have to say the answer is no, because even though he spent time behind bars, he didn't spend that long. I recall that it was possibly around three years that he served. Did they ever receive counseling and help for them to understand it was not their fault? I'm, no, I'm in no way a social worker or a therapist, 
But as a mother, an aunt, sister, human being, if I hear that anyone has been through any of this, my first thoughts would have been about what supports were there to help them get through it and become productive members of society. They weren't removed from a situation that left physical and emotional scars. And when that danger was taken out of their lives, it wasn't for that long. And I wonder if it made them feel like, you know, the pain that they suffered wasn't worth that much. And I hope I'm explaining that correctly. Or in a way that's, that can be better understood. Now, when I first decided to look at Lamont Norm, Allison Lamont Norman's case, I really entered into it thinking that I would absolutely hate him. Yes, I don't use the term hate lightly. And in fact, I was raised to never hate anyone. I was told I could hate the actions that they committed, but not the person. But there are times I felt like somebody deserved hate. But after knowing the, and also knowing the fear that he caused throughout, you know, just the whole area, I knew that people suffered. I've driven the roads that he drove numerous times. And when I started looking at his case, I felt that I wouldn't have no sympathy for him at all. And while I have no sympathy in, the gar- in regards to the crimes that both he and his brother committed as adults, I can sympathize for their, their childhood, for what they went through as children and recognize that there were many missed opportunities that just weren't followed up on to try to stop these events from happening. I know that as humans, we have a free will and there will always be people who strive for power or for gain, no matter what the cost and those who are just willing and able to hurt others and will do so. These are people that truly have no conscience, no morals. But when you look at a case where those who committed the crimes were abused, we have to wonder, you know, how much of a factor that played in their future crimes. And we have to try to address those impacts immediately. Now, we hear often that the system failed. And when we hear the word system, it could be anything from the justice system to societal systems that we put in place for children, such as school or social workers or the Department of Children's Health and Safety, which has different names in different states, so I'll just call it CPS, Children's Protective Services in general. Looking at Allison Lamont Norman, he definitely needed help. He was showing signs of distress the night before at his girlfriend's house. And 
there were people there who should have recognized he was going through something and needed help. He was literally crying on the floor. He was crying for help. And I have to wonder if he was ever given encouragement as well, given coping, coping mechanisms, given an outlet for any of the emotions he had. You know, there needs to be encouragement for children, focus on developing their interests to give them something to strive for. So beyond just counseling, counseling, they have to have a positive outlook for the future. And, you know, I hope that can be done by encouraging each child's interests for their future. It would be wonderful if all the funds that are currently being spent, you know, for CPS or other types of community services, if all of that money could be funneled into preventative measures earlier on so that eventually maybe a couple generations down the road, because I know it's not an immediate fix, that we can, you know, help develop children's goals, interests, and most importantly, self-esteem before they graduate, hence decreasing the possibility that they can go into crimes or feel like they've been let down. Will this, you know, be something that will help everybody? Probably not, because there's lots of people, you know, who just internally lack a moral compass. But in cases where you know, we can intervene early, I think that's something that we need to do. Now, also given Norman's antics, and maybe I shouldn't even use the term antics, maybe actions in the courtroom, I also have to question his mental health and as far as whether or not he was actually being able to assist in his own defense but then also I wonder if he was trying to manipulate the system um, to possibly try to get a lighter, lighter sentence. I don't know. We may never know. Now, like I mentioned briefly um, just a moment ago, he was crying on the floor the night before. So he was showing signs of needing help in the days prior to this rampage, but no one seemed to either hear it or at least listen to it. There were some reports that, for lack of any other way to put this, in that he put his head in a toilet, that at some point he was on the floor crying, saying, help me, help me, and moaning. He also indicated that he wanted revenge for himself and his brother. And again, it doesn't appear as though anyone tried to get him help. And in fact, at one point, he asked Keisha for his gun. At some point in time, he had asked her to look out for it or look after it for him. But she gave it to him, even after witnessing his cry for help. She gave it to him. Now, Norman's mother said he did not own a gun when she was writing letters to a judge on a previous charge, but apparently, even if he didn't keep it at her home, he had one. 
So I really, really have to question that. Now, given gun law requirements, he probably did not obtain one legally because of his prior convictions unless he bought it beforehand. But no matter what, Norman is the one who pulled the trigger in April of 2005. His brother pulled the trigger in April of 2003. They were aware of the dangers. Now, I did read some speculation that some people thought he was trying to prove to his family that he was worthy to win them back. Um, we did discuss the fact that he thought, Norman thought he was trying to protect his family. And, you know, again, going back to the fact that his actions are no way or in, can in no way be excused. I feel even more empathy and sympathy towards all of their victims to those who were injured and left to live the rest of their lives with the physical and emotional scars that those, those actions that these men put forth in those days, you know, caused them to have, you know, to Mr. Peter's wife who had to tell their children that their father wasn't coming home. And there's no way to explain it in even most cases of even natural death of a parent, but much less that he was just randomly gunned down because he was in the wrong place at the wrong time. So many more lost, lost something, lost someone because of the actions of Norman and DeShields, regardless of what their past held. Now, as far as Norman's conviction, what happened after that? Initially, he was sentenced to death, but he did appeal with the biggest issue being the testimony from a doctor um, you know, saying that it should not have been allowed. And also something that, yes, legally, I can see why they would argue this that he was being tried in Delaware. And one of the stipulations about um, having the death penalty would be committing multiple murders, but the multiple murders cross state lines. And so in Delaware, he only, I can't say only, but in terms of capital punishment, he killed one person in Delaware not multiple murders. Also, within reading some of these, um, this information, as far as how both Maryland and Delaware treat the insanity plea, it looks like Delaware is more strict regarding that. Um, an argument made in the appeal was that, you know, it's unconstitutional to execute someone who was not capable of understanding his actions were criminal, and so that means it was against his constitutional rights. What was eventually ruled was that while the doctor that interviewed him in Maryland on behalf of Delaware 
it did meet an independent source rule. So his defense or his um, conviction there was upheld. So going back to the argument that the defense made was that one of the, the testimony from one of the doctors should not have been allowed. This is saying that, yes, it's independent. So yes, it's upheld. And as far as the other argument about committing multiple murders, what they did then is they looked at Maryland's regulations or the way they handled the mental capacity issue and understanding the criminality of his actions since Maryland's rules weren't quite the same. The decision of the death penalty was overturned. Now, going back to try to revisit the issue, the state of Delaware decided not to seek the death penalty again because they spoke with the victim's family members and they really didn't want to have to go through all of the anguish again. So we looked at two brothers who were most likely failed by the system when they were younger, but we cannot let that change the fact that they did commit heinous crimes, that families lost loved ones, that people were injured and impacted forever. But hopefully we can try to study each of these individual cases to try to be more preventative about these types of incidents occurring. And we can tell by the news that these types of incidents are occurring more and more and more frequently. And that emphasizes the importance of studying each case so that people don't fall through the cracks, so that we can look at the red flags and actually recognize them instead of just kind of waving them off. You know, so hopefully we can learn, try to act earlier, and be a voice for those who don't or can't have a voice so that they don't grow up to be that person that they despise the most. Okay, I know this was a little bit longer. I decided not to split this episode into two episodes as I sometimes do because I thought even though they were two separate crimes or crime spree in one case, that their background really connected them and it needed to be addressed together. So I hope you found this informative and... Hopefully, as a society, we can continue to grow and learn from these incidents that are just happening so, so much now and try to get at things from the root or at the beginning rather than, you know, after, after the fact where we're trying to recover from these type of incidents and crimes. I will, you know, again, leave all of the contact information, all of the sources linked in the description, and I will talk to you again soon. Bye.